HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous food ways. Hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Each episode features high vibrational conversations with cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pitmasters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. Join me on Culture and Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Hey, Laba. Hey, Laba. <laughs> Comment ça va? Yeah, ça va bien. Ça va bien de yeah. toi. All right. <laughs> How Very good. How are you doing? I'm great because I'm here with you at Dillard oh. University. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, welcome to Culture and Flavor. It's such an honor to have you on this program. Oh, you know, thank I adore you. you. I'm a huge fan. I'm one of your minions. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here with you today. So today, everyone, I, we have the pleasure of interviewing Madame Barbara Trevine, a New Orleans legend, a historian, social worker, the um, tour, New Orleans tour guide. New Orleans tour guide. Well, well let me you, go ahead, go <laughs> ahead, Queen. Okay. Historian of New Orleans culture and yes. heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the physical artist and the great great granddaughter of Paul Trevine. Great, niece. niece, niece, niece. So let's let's talk a little bit about who you are, and you know you are um, you have a long lineage in the Seventh Ward. Um, in the Seventh Ward in New Orleans, you are a Creole, a Creole de couleur, right? And yes. I want you to talk about um, your family and just you know the legacy of Paul Trevine, your great great, and how many greats. Uncle. <laughs> my, my third great uncle. Mm-hmm. I think he's my third great uncle. Uh, I am a Creole because all of my ancestors were here during the French and colonial mm-hmm. period. And because I have ancestors buried in St. Louis number one cemetery. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the criteria. I always tell people, do you have anybody buried in St. Louis number one? Because that was the first recognized mm-hmm. Catholic 
cemetery that we have here. So I go back on some of my lines all the way to the 12th mm. ancestor. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I have you, and just like everybody else, all of that DNA is still there. You don't lose mm-hmm. your DNA. Who, who was Paul Trevine? Paul Trevine was born here. He was a tailor by profession, as well as the editor of La Tribune de la Nouvelle Orléans, New Orleans' first African-American newspaper during the Civil War. And it was very um, a rebellious newspaper, so to say, because that's what they termed it, because there was nobody else writing about the Civil War and what was going on. So no one would have known what was going on if they just had other newspapers that was appearing here, like the New Orleans Bee and, and other museums. So uh, Dr. Rudenay, Louis Charles Rudenay, who was uh, a physician at the time, he was uh, schooled in France, and he was there when the revolution occurred. So when he came back here, we were fighting too. So he began uh, the newspaper. And Paul Trevino was called upon. His uh, Dr. Rudinay's brother, Jean-Baptiste, uh, was there. And a lot of the Creole gentlemen here joined the newspaper and wrote articles mm-hmm. about the war. And it operated until Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's still the building is still standing. The there's building is still there. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a memorial plaque stating that this is where La Tribune mm-hmm. was us formed. What makes New Orleans different from the rest of the South during slavery? I want you to talk a little about the free people of color, the gens de color libre, and just that era of opera, Edmond Dede, and paint the picture for us, for readers who aren't familiar with New Orleans Creole of color history. You need several brushes. Yes. You need several brushes to to understand in New Orleans. First of all, we were not settled by American people. We're not part of the original colonies like Philadelphia and over there. We were uh, French and Spanish, and that is who we were governed by. And we had enslaved people here because the Frenchmen, they tried bringing French people here but the men could not do the work. So they tried to use the Indians first, and they knew how to run away. So that didn't prove good. Then the Frenchmen came, and that didn't prove good. So they thought about it, and they said, well, let's get some skilled people, some skilled men. So they got the Africans, like from um, West Africa, uh, from Senegal, And they came already knowing how to survive, knowing how to live, knowing how to build, knowing how to cook, knowing how to um, go into agriculture. So they had these skills when they came. And you have to remember, urban slavery was different than the inner city. The rural, the rural. The rural, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very different from the rural area. And when you when you walk the streets of New Orleans, especially the French Quarter, let's let's take that first, because the city was built there in the um in the French Quarter, you worked and lived in the same place. 
So the people that you owned, because you owned property and people were considered property, they lived on the same land that you lived right behind your house. So when you, you don't see it from the street necessarily, but when you, you go in through the alleyway, we have alleyways, then you see the dependency houses or you see the slave quarters, and that's where people lived. And they worked and lived. So it was very hard because everybody knew each other. And when people went to work, they just went out and maybe went upstairs in their house and had their business there, or they walked maybe two blocks along the banquet of what we call it, the sidewalk, uh, and, and they, went, they went to work. So they knew who was who. They talk about the uh, women that, especially when they're doing research, people are doing research. Take Marie Laveau, for instance. Oh, we were going to get there. <laughs> We're going to get there. Let me just say this to, the, to our listeners. I met Madame um, over a decade ago. We were, I was yeah. doing research on my family, and um, it was, we were in, I was in the library, and I walked in, and there she was through, doing the microfish. And she said, hey, Shay. And she's just such a warm person, and she, we just knew that we were kindred spirits, and we've been yeah. friends for a very long time. She's literally seen my, my, my children grow up. Right. I have. Yes, I have. <laughs> and they are wonderful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate they are that. They're wonderful. And she has taught me so much and opened up so much to me and just supported my research, my work. You know, um, we even did a project together um, from Mouchoir to um, to Team Yons. And I want, you know, we're going to get into Marie Laveau and how Marie Laveau was you know, important to foodways and culinary history in New Orleans and, and just the whole zeitgeist of um, African-American foodways. But I wanted, to, you know, you to get into how you came to know Marie Laveau. Can I tell you that after I tell you why I mentioned her name? Yes. Okay. I mentioned her name, first of all, because to show you how people knew each other when they walk the streets here. It's the same thing now. When you catch the bus lots of times or wherever you go and you see the same person. So you get, to, you get to know that person. Well, if you were enslaved here and you were seen walking the street, like Marie had a slave and she used to walk arm in arm with her, her, the, the man that she was with, arm in arm, not hand in arm. She walked arm in arm, and they always said that uh, she escaped. No, they knew where she was mm. because everybody knew the gentleman that she was with, and everybody knew her. So when they see her walk the street, they could always say, yeah, she's, she's down there at the corner living with so-and-so. So it's very different than uh, uh, urban. Mm-hmm. Urban enslavement, and, you know, I, I, I want to lift up, you know, historians like you, um, so many unsung heroes um, that have, you know, done this work for a long time that didn't necessarily have the, um, you know, the opportunities that we have now. Um, John Blassingame is one of them. You know, he was one of the first to be in the, you know, Catholic archives and really do research on, you know, uh, post-Reconstruction in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many others, I, um, you know, the book 1811 Slave Revolt and, you know, Black-owned bookstores like Community Bookstore that have all of these gems of self-published um, 
scholars, you know, who are constantly researching and telling these stories. And you're one of them. You know, we we appreciate you in New Orleans for all of your work. And I want to give you Thank your flowers you. now. You know, we wouldn't be I wouldn't be where I am today without you. So I, I appreciate every every time I you know every time I call you 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 come through. So I, and I, I know sometimes I'm late sometimes. <laughs> and you get mad at me, <laughs> but you know I, I you have just been um, a light in my life, and you know we all love you, you my too. students you and too. everybody. But you know I want to get back to um, Marie. Let's get back to Marie, and then um, you know just how you. You know, you always tell me that the ancestors call you in New Orleans, right? Oh, they do call you. Oh, you, when you get into research and you're that involved, they speak in your ears. You may go to the library and all of a sudden you see something open on a counter and you're like, oh, I could use that information. Well, it was there for a reason. And then when you get really involved, then you hear something else speaking in your ears, telling you what you need to do. So then you might go back and find somebody else because they get jealous of each other. <laughs> and they'll have you doing <laughs> 10 projects at one time. <laughs> and you don't know if you're coming. Because they do, they get jealous. They could be, everybody wants their story told. And their stories were not told. That's why I said your DNA never leave. Your DNA never leave you. It's always there. So as many ancestors as you find, it's going to be many more that haven't spoken in your ears yet. How did you get involved with Marie? Well, when I was little, we used to dress up every Mardi Gras and say that we were gypsies. So that meant hoop earrings. That meant uh, a head wrap which I learned was called a tignon, which I wear to this day, a tignon in my... Well, you were, when you had your ears pierced, you got hoop earrings, you know, so... And then I was told, we couldn't figure out who you looked like. <laughs> you always have big earrings on, and this is as an adult, a teenager growing up, you always have a big old hoop earring. Yeah, you Marie Laveau. I don't know, who is Marie Laveau? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know who Marie Laveau was, you know. Only thing I knew, my grandmother said, oh, yeah, she was a powerful woman. And I heard a lot of other old people say she was a powerful woman. But then when I asked them, well, what was her powers? Oh, she was just, she was just powerful. People just went to her when they wanted something. She, she could do anything that uh, you asked her to do. And I found myself... I'll never forget it. Somebody told me that they, they had Marie Laveau's hairbrush. Oh, I ran to the house. I would, I would go to everybody who told me they had information on Marie, and I would leave. So this was, so I stopped doing that. I'm like, everybody want to be related to her. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody say they're related to Marie. Once I was asked the most a rude question, is that true? Marie Laveau is better standing up in her tomb. I said, standing up in her tomb. <laughs> in that tomb, that's hers in St. Louis, number one. I said, I don't think so. So that's how I got to Marie. And also in doing my Duplanche genealogy, one of my ancestors married a cracker. And Marie's daughter, the uh, Yuka Race, had children for Pierre Crocker. But I, I never could find 
definitive, well, I have speculation, good speculation. I don't have, I have baptismal records, I have all that, but I don't have anything that I could really say and produce and say, here, here's the document, mm -hmm. you know, but you'd have to be kin to Marie through the Crocker line or the Legendre line mm -hmm. because her sons never grew to adulthood, so there's no male line to carry the Glapion name because she signed herself as the Widow Paris mm -hmm. because her husband Jacques died. So all her documents, she's the widow parish, signed uh, Marie Laveau. Mm. Her husband uh, was Charles Laveau, son mm. of Carlos Laveau Trudeau. So Marie has been um, really castigated through history when she did really wonderful things with people. One of the wonderful things that I want you to talk about was when um, Black men were on death row, you know, and what would she bring to the prisons? Oh, she prayed for everybody. When they were going to be executed by hanging, public hangings, right there in, in uh, Armstrong Park in Congo Square, she would prepare a religious altar for them, and she would have the cell painted, freshly painted white, and she, her altar would be three tiers high, and she would pray with them. And when Pedro Avila and the other one, she brought a Spanish Bible to them. And she was a vituler. When you cook food at home and you bring it somewhere else, she was a vituler. And she also took care of other ill persons. And I'm sure Marie was at the Battle of New Orleans as a young person, very young, because when you hit puberty, you were considered a woman. So I'm sure she was there. Uh, in the, at the Chalmette battlefield, taking care of wounded, wounded servants. Hmm. So Marie did a lot, and she, she housed a lot of people, and she saw to it that people had prayers. She, she stood in for baptisms for people. She stood at, uh, for weddings when people got married. She, did, she was a very active community person. She also used the church with Pierre Antoine, who married her, to help her with people. So Marie never got her fair share of the, the right history. And to this day, people sensationalize her, her life because they feel as though it's sell. And whenever a move is made and someone is Marie Laveau, it's always a stereotypical Marie Laveau because they want the movie to make money. Now, you consulted, if I'm not mistaken, on the American Horror Story with um, Angela Bassett. Am I, am I correct? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. And Ms. Bassett was wonderful to work with. And uh, I worked with her with the Tignon headdress. Tell, tell our listeners what Tignons are, for those who don't know. A Tignon was composed in the rule of Edith with Governor Miro in the late 1700s. And it was really meant... Well, the edict of good government meant this is how, if you want to have a community, this is what the rules and regulations should be to have a good government. That's why it was the edict of good government, how to run and have a good government. So he has several articles in his edict, and one was regarding how women dressed and how they looked. So it was to downplay 
the beauty of women. And he stated women could not wear silk, jewels, or plumes in their hair. So you have to remember and look when you go into the Cabildo, the Louisiana State Museum Cabildo here in New Orleans, you see portraits of women with high hair, okay? And you also see women with flat hair, with a part down the center. Well, he felt that these, these biracial women, free women of color, they were cohabitating with European men, whereas the women already here, whether they were from France or Spain or whatever, they were not cohabitating, and nobody was interested in them, so they picked women of color. So, But it was also because, if I'm not mistaken, I remember you telling me because nobody wanted to come to the swamps. Oh, right? nobody wanted to come here. This was frontier land, and it was hard to survive. So when you're single, that means you have it very hard. So these women who were single, they had it very, very hard. But the Creole women of color, they didn't have it as hard because... They had, they were cohabitating. It wasn't, it, it wasn't called that fancy word that they use contemporarily, but it was, you know, they, they survived quite well. And sometimes them and their children, they all lived together. And they were buried in the same tomb in St. Louis Number 1 Cemetery. So what happened was, what the Tignon did, the headdress, it, brought out their beauty, because when we as women cover our head and the face is framed, then you could see the beauty of a woman, and you can see the ancestry when you look into a person's face, because you're not distracted by hair. Your eyes are focused from the forehead to the chin. And when they put that edict on, if I'm not correct, I mean, they just went all in and they went turned all it all around. In. They turned it around for the clothes, too. You couldn't wear a furbelows, which was a ruffle around the dress. Now, what they did say, what they didn't say, I mean, is that they didn't say if you went out without a tear on, you were going to be arrested. They didn't say anything about that. So we don't know really how long that rule was in effect, but it was under under Governor Miro. It just faded. I mean, I wrote articles uh, in the book that you mentioned uh, from Mushua and also with um, Dr. Skip Gates in one of his journals and, and different articles that I've wrote through, written through throughout the years about, about the Tion. So it's, it's been very, very interesting and it was very hard convincing people to tie their hair because it was stereotypical of Aunt Jemima. But Aunt Jemima had hawk story, too, in cooking. And nobody in New Orleans covered their head anymore to cook. So covering your head was very, very sanitary because you didn't have hair in your food. So some people wore the bandana and some people wore the tea Everybody wore something over their head, even men. Napoleon Bonaparte wore a madras scarf on his head when he was confined to the island, and it was checkered. So Napoleon draped himself at night 
with a mitra scarf. So it's been around, and I'm so glad to see. Oh, I took pride one time when they had, um, it was at Ashe. I haven't heard of it anymore, but it was throughout the United States. It was headdress day. Mm-hmm. where women were to wear a headdress. So I participated in that, and lots and lots of women came out to Ashe. Mm-hmm. And so this was, this was, it was really, really very, very nice. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We did, I, you know, we did a couple of programming that just, you know, I still cherish and I will always cherish when, you know, we interviewed you for our student documentary, the story of New Orleans Creole cooking the black hand on the pot. Oh, yes. And you had my students and I laughing out loud <laughs> because you were talking about remembering Circle Food Store in Treme and when, um, you know, you could go and get live chickens. And you can, you know, you would, the, the, you, you talked about how fresh the meat was. Oh, yes. And now the Ooh. chickens look like, you know. Chickens are tough. And they, they're like they're steroid. Steroid. They are steroid. <laughs> chickens are steroids. <laughs> Cows are steroids. But I would love for you to talk a little bit just about the legacy of New Orleans street food vendors. Because you grew up during that time where the vegetable man, the oyster man, the popcorn man, I mean, everybody. I got tomatoes, I got strawberries. That part. (laughs) (laughs) I got everything you want. I see your lady peeping out the door. Come on, get this this fresh watermelon. My job was to go to Steve's Poultry on Claiborne Avenue and get the chickens. And I had to wait for the chickens. So they grabbed the whole chicken out the cage on the sidewalk. They brought it in and dumped it in a barrel. And you could hear the feet going around (laughs) in the barrel. (laughs) But you paid for the feathers, too, when you had to pay. You (laughs) You paid for the feathers and you... Paid for the internal organs, you paid for that, and you brought it home whole with the neck on. So, because they never saw anything without the neck detached, even the rabbits. The rabbits were skinned, but the rabbit's head was on, so the customer would know that is a rabbit that they bought. So that that was my job, and also they had the praline lady. She was she was on Claiborne Avenue, and they had. Uh, my specialty was I love coconut plurines. 
That's my favorite. It's coconut puris. And they had peanuts. They had, they had all kind of food mm. that you could just you could just go and buy. No pies. Mm. One of my favorite stories that you would tell me is um, on Mardi Gras Day and how women would make kalas for children. Oh, yes. Tell, I, I tell forgot everybody about what kalas are. <laughs> too sure kala, too sure kala. I got all hot kalas. Kalas is made with their old rice. Like we eat red beans and rice on Mondays. Okay, well, you could take some of that rice and cook it till it's soft, soft, soft. And it's better than a beignet. I can testify to that. And it's made different. It's the rice, it's the cinnamon, it's the sugar, it's all of that in it. And you fry it till it's brown, and but you let it cool for a few minutes, and then you pour the powdered sugar on it, and you eat it hot, and you might have coffee with it or milk. We had milk because it was Mardi Gras, you know, and the wild man came and told you it was Mardi Gras time. You know, he, he run down the street, wow, that's why he was the wild man. You know, and the skeleton people would come and say, Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras, <laughs> it's Bonneville time. <laughs> and so that, that was the introduction to Mardi Gras here. Everybody had to hear that sound. They all had to. They all had to hear it. How have things changed? Um, just reflecting on your life growing up in the Seventh Ward, you know, you you've seen a lot um, change. I know. You I've know, seen we- a, I've seen a lot of change because when uh, when I got older and went out, I thought everybody had a religious altar in their house and candles, and I was shocked that they didn't because every house in my neighborhood. And I'm talking about a, a large square area, squares and squares, that people had candles that they burned, red candles, and they kept it in their armoire or they kept it on their mantle because we all lived in shotgun houses and we all had mantles. So you had your altar on your mantle at home. But they didn't do that. Maybe, we, maybe it was because we had more Catholic people here. I don't know, but I know one time somebody came to my house and wanted to know why you have that candle burning. I'm like, what do you mean why I have that candle burning? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, they thought you, you could were the be better lady. than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, well, you ever tried burning a candle not sitting in something? You could burn your own house down, can't you? <laughs> so it goes to show you how certain things and certain rituals were not preserved or not even explained mm. to other people who may have a different religious faith or just have it by custom. You know, because, I mean, we had storms here, so people kept their candles for all different kinds of reasons. So when you have to ask me, why do you have that candle burning? I'm like, there's something wrong. There's something wrong here in this culture. Mm-hmm. Something, is, something is missing and going astray. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think... Um you know, it's the more that um, New Orleans become more Americanized, you know, that the, the culture is leaving, or was it Katrina that you noticed? Oh, I think the culture has left uh, a while back. It's, it's, not, it's not the same. It's, it's not the same. People are not cooking the same way. The produce is not the same. It's not the, the same taste. People are on more medication now, too. So when you were on that medication, a lot of medication, it changed your taste buds. So that, that have a, uh, 
a role that is playing mm -hmm. in the culinary institute of, of food. There's one dish that I still am waiting to cook with you. A classic dish that we always talk about. What oh, is it? Oh, a roast. Uh, veal pocket. Veal, veal pocket. With oyster dressing. <laughs> With oyster dressing. Oh, that's good. We are going to do that this year. Well, I we have find to the find the butcher. I, I talked to the butcher. To talk about, I want us to talk about butchers, Creole butchers in New Orleans. Oh, they don't have... I, I have a butcher that said, what? what? I, I asked the man... To, like this is it wasn't butchered the seafood. I said, um, I want a um a rat red. And he looked at me. <laughs> I said, I want I want a rat red fish. I said, mister. He had the spot on his tail. He has a black spot on his tail. He didn't know what I was talking about. I said, I don't want a red fish, I want a rat tail. <laughs> red fish. <laughs> Nobody's teaching mm -hmm. yeah. about the, the food here, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the purpose of the food. I, I go on um, Florida Avenue on Fridays and get my seafood. I said, Miss, you don't want that fish. I said, look at the gulls. I said, you want a fresh fish? I said, you want a crab, a social crab? I said, that's a male, and this is a female. You want the female if you're going to use gumbo because females have more fat. Nobody's teaching other generations mm -hmm. of, what, of how to select your food, mm -hmm. where it's from, mm -hmm. and what taste are you looking for. Mm -hmm. We had that here. We couldn't grow a lot of food here. The German coast provided us with a lot of food. We could import a lot of food, and people combined their skills with what they knew, but nobody's doing it. Let me ask you, how many people do you know make gumbo? I mean, a lot of people make gumbo, but it changes, and it depends it on what changed. ward you're from, right? It changes. Yeah, what ward you are, and I've never eaten shrimp and butter beans. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. I've never eaten that. Mm -hmm. When you had okra gumbo, you had okra gumbo. You didn't have filet in okra gumbo. When you had filet, you had filet gumbo. And that's F-I-L-E with the accenté mm -hmm. on the E, else it would be foul. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you feel when you look online on Facebook and you see people, you know, making their versions of gumbo and, you Oh, know? I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I go, you could do better than that. <laughs> and I see some of these dishes mm. and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> What are some of your favorite dishes from your childhood that you remember? Everything. Mm. I remember you always talk about corn pudding. Oh, yes. And people always mistaken that as a, a soup or something. But it was a pudding my grandmother made, corn pudding. I say it's corn pudding, and if I tell her somebody, and they say, oh, yeah, I, I, I good corn pudding. And I'm like, no, you don't make a dessert. Mm. You they cook it a different kind of way, like a vegetable mm -hmm. stew or something. Mm -hmm. No. And she baked it. She grated the corn. She she had it in water, grated, used some of the water, condensed milk, and I don't remember what else she used. And she and she would bake it. My brother came pretty close to doing it hmm. the way the, the way that she did. I loved the corn pudding. Loved it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference now when you say corn pudding. 
Mm-hmm. There's a difference when you say pudding because I do not use a fork and a knife for pudding. If you have to use a fork and a knife, you're not eating pudding. Mm. All you need is a spoon mm-hmm. to eat pudding. But have you ever eaten pudding with a, a fork and a knife? No, it's no, uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's uh-uh. good. Yeah, when you go to restaurants and you order pudding, you're going to need a fork to eat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't eat pudding now. There's just certain things I don't eat in restaurants. Well, what do you, you know, what, what do you feel is the future of Creole cuisine and culture then? Because you've, you've, you're one of the, our biggest preservationists in the city. What do we do to... We need the at-home cooks that people never hear about, the older people. We need chefs who's learning, you know, since they want to learn um, different cultures of how to cook. Well, they, they, they need to invest in the culture here and learn how to cook and preserve some of those recipes. Dylan have a wonderful book. You all have a wonderful book with recipes in it. Thank you. Shout out to the uh, recipes that remember there's a fair yeah, dealer. Yeah, it, it's good. And you shared a kala recipe in that book. Yes, I did. Yes. It's a wonderful book. With They even tell you how to make hogheads cheese. Yes, indeed. You yes, know. indeed. And so you, you, that's, you don't have to go to Paris mm-hmm. if you want to go and get those dishes. Okay, okay, incorporate them here. You know, and study, study your history here. If you can make it here cooking, you can make it anywhere. Mm. Mm, that's facts. You can. The closest I came to really enjoying restaurant food was that restaurant you took me at. Which one? Oh, oh uh, uh, on Magazine uh, Street. The Carnola, the uh, Chef Serene and Bay. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, He's I enjoy. doing good things. He's doing great things in the city. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really good. Mm-hmm. You know, it would taste like home-cooked New Orleans food. Mm-hmm. And what, what makes New Orleans different from other states or cities, you know, you have Charleston, you have all of these different cities that had their own culinary repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. What, what makes New Orleans so special? Because a lot of times when tourists come to the city, they always talk about Cajun cuisine. Where's the Cajun restaurant, right? And a lot of times they don't know about Creole history. What makes New Orleans so special with our cuisine here? It's the love. When you... when you are cooking, you are really talking to your food, and you're stirring it, or you're flipping it. You say, oh, this, these oysters are wonderful. Mm-hmm, looks so good. Let me see how my broth look, um, the gumbo. Mm-hmm, I'm going to put the shrimps in now. Mm-hmm. And you're steadily talking mm-hmm. to your food. You, you're forming a relation, a spiritual forming a, a relationship with the food that you're cooking or the, and the food that you grew in your garden because everybody had a pep-up garden. They had, everybody had that in a neighborhood. And you grew certain things in your yard and you, you planted that with love and then you cooked with it with love and you blessed your food before you ate it. Mm. So it's a different levels of your food. It's not just going to the store and getting your produce or your meat, those chickens on steroids, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Girl Scout sign. I ate a chicken the other day, and I was like, "I'm gonna have to call somebody in the Department of Agriculture to find out if you eat square fish, <laughs> and they serve square fish to school children, and you run across a piece of uh, chicken that's stringy mm. and flat. Mm. I mean, flat like a pancake." Mm-hmm. 
You ever eat a chicken breast like that? Mm, Me either. Mm, That's why I have to find out what... What's replacing the chicken? Right, right. Something is replacing that meat, mm. and that's not chicken meat. Mm. And, you know, my, also thinking of gumbo and grilled cheese service, you know, for school lunches here in New Orleans, which is quite different from other places, right? And is, is that the last, you know, the last stand to hold on to the culture is making sure that children you know, have that cultural memory, even though me, the majority of our schools are charter schools now? I think that's that's been gone. They used to have little bitty ribs that they would give students, and it was really soy meat. But they would tell them it's barbecue. That that would be on the menu, barbecue ribs. And when you ate it, you knew it was it was soy. Mm. Mm. So because they're doing it in mass, you see, mm. they're yeah. doing it in mass mass uh, productions. When you're feeding all these these students and you're serving them square fish. So kids, well, you know, chickens, for instance, children really don't know chicken walk on feet. <laughs> they don't. They, they don't. They, they don't. don't. They sh- don't know that. So when you take them to the, the, you know, the farm or, you know, and you see that, they're just, that, I've eaten that. <laughs> I used to make and design my chicken feet for the jazz festival. Mm, uh, well, let's talk even about chicken feet, because chicken feet goes into religion and spirituality, Yes, right? it is. And I used to put fingernail polish, you know, and stuff on the nails. And I used to make a, a, a I would take a stick and wrap it like you do a bow and arrow. And the teachers used to buy it to use as pointers mm. for their children. And the children used to pass by, and, and they didn't know that. That was chicken feet. I said, well, what did you think a chicken walked on? Mm. And they would tell me, on oh, nubs. <laughs> <laughs> ah. That they walked on nubs. Oh, so, bless their heart. <laughs> well, but it's the, it's the truth. So nobody's teaching the children either. Mm. Mm. So you go to kindergarten or first grade and you still don't know, you never saw a chicken in the yard. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Crazy. So we're not teaching. We're not educating. We're not educating in families. Children are on the uh, Internet or their cell phone. They take it in their room. Mm -hmm. They bring it to the dining room table. They they do games on it. Mm -hmm. It's not family time anymore. I think also possibly, you know, what you mentioned earlier, the disconnect now from the urban to rural. Oh, yeah. When you see... um, you know, vendors from, you know, different parts of Southwest Louisiana and they come down here and sell shrimp like the shrimp man or, you know, and then they're pushed Mm -hmm. out from selling or they're ticketed, you know, it discourages that, you know, culture to stay alive, right? Yeah. And policy, you know, is pushing that away. And, and, you know, uh, street food vendors were so essential and integral to you know, feeding New Orleanians for centuries. Cowans fed people here because you just went to the rural area where um, Gentilly East is, you know, and you could get a cowan, which is a turtle, all right, and you brought that home, cooked it, and you ate that. Mm-hmm. You know, you ate that um, during Easter. And everybody could smell you was cooking, so everybody wanted to come to your house and eat. So the kawan is, I guess the kawan is extinct. I would never eat that in a restaurant mm. because I'm not downing in a restaurant because I've eaten in some really good restaurants. It's just that I know 
Cowans, C-O-W-A-N, mm. Cowan, different parts of the body have different tastes of meat. Mm. So you could buy a rump roast and cut it up. Mm. You could buy pork and cut it up. Because it all tastes different parts. Mm-hmm. The back tastes like chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, everything in New Orleans tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's the truth. Anything you eat in New Orleans is going to taste. Squirrels. Squirrels taste like chicken. <laughs> if, it, if you say frog legs, mm, tastes like chicken. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Pay attention to that when you ask somebody what it tastes like. They're going to tell you, tastes like chicken. Mm. So... What role did Creole women of color have in building this cuisine? You know, I I also want you to talk a little bit about, you know, just misconceptions in history, placage. You know, a lot of folks continue to, you know, put that out there, you know, that narrative of that this was some type of fantasy world and, you know, and Creole women of color were... um, Mm-hmm. You, you know they had I'm to depend about? upon, yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, uh, they cohabitated. One of my ancestors, Joseph Trevino, because our name was Trevino from Biscaya, Spain. And he met up with a lady who was enslaved. So all of my grandmothers were uh, enslaved. And they, they were with uh, free men of color and European men. So they cohabitated, which meant that they lived together as they, though they were married, mm-hmm. okay? So what men did, they circumvented the law. You could acknowledge your child, your non-legal child, through the act of baptism. Mm-hmm. And if that child was enslaved, the father could free the child, but he did not have to free the mother. Mm-hmm. They also circumvented the law by leaving their money and saying something like, I want to leave uh, Mary... Uh, 2,000 pesos because she took good care of me during my time of illness and for her children, such and such, get, you know, whatever, and go down the line and give the, the children. Now, the will could always be uh, contested by the man's uh, legal relatives, but it's not all the time that they were, but it could, it could happen. So there were ways that men did this, and when it was uh, time after the Civil War, what was it before? I can't recall the year. It was legal in New Orleans where white men could marry women of color, and then that rule changed again. Mm-hmm. So they never they never referred to people as uh, plissage, you know. And a lot of women bought property and owned from their own industry. You know, by being street vendors or by being washerwomen or by doing certain tasks, and they saved their money. Mm-hmm. They, you could sell your money in the hem of your dress. Rose Nicole is one in particular. Rose Nicole, that's right. Rose Nicole was one. And you bought your own property. Where the Herma Grimma houses, that was all owned by free women of color mm-hmm. who worked and had their property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some... Like another ancestor of mine, um, her son freed her, but the man that she was lived, cohabitating with, he left her wood to, in which to build her house, mm-hmm. and he left her money. 
to maintain herself. And it's still standing today, mm. that house. One of my favorite stories, um, and, you know, just really got me to start thinking deeper about just the system of slavery and, you know, and just how, what survival skills it took to um, be a woman, a black woman during that time. Oh, yes. George Washington Cable's um, story on Madame Delphine. I don't know if you know that story, but it's basically this this woman who was um, enslaved you know, she, I think it was post-Reconstruction, but her daughter was very fair-skinned. And so she was pushing her daughter to marry the European man mm-hmm. because she knew that she couldn't provide the lifestyle and just it was going to be very hard for her daughter. And it's this moment where she's pretending to be this the her daughter's own nanny and saying that her white parents left her, you know, and so she was just taking care of them. And this moment where she has to hand off her daughter to this, you know, man so she can marry because she's being passe blanc. She's passing as white. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was such a painful story. But you empathize in some ways because a mother's love, you know, and what they'll do to make sure that their child will survive at any means. You know, that happened. And of course, you know, they could always go to Paris. I want you to talk about Paris, and let's talk about Mexico, too. Yeah, because uh, it was allowed, but Jefferson, uh, what's his name, the president? One person in particular, Edmund Dede. Oh, yes, Edmund Dede, yes. His cremola. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot his wife's name. I forgot forgot her name. Yeah, because he he experienced too much racism here. And he was an opera composer, Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, yeah. And Edmund Dede, uh, I have his CD at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the other man's name? Edmund Dede, uh, I forgot the other man's name. But the, there were there were ways, but you have people now who are just finding out that their father was not white. Mm-hmm. You know, so it goes from generation to generation. Mark Rudinez is one person in particular, a dear friend of ours, right? Yeah, he found out that you know his 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 relative was um, you know Dr. Rudinez. Dr. Rudinez. Rudin, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, some people are just finding that out. Some families accept it, and some families don't. It, it depends on, it depends on the person and how they 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 view things in life. And that probably was why Americans, when they came down here after the Louisiana Purchase, they looked at what is going on, what kind of place. Well, yeah, because you know, on Sundays, you know, we went visiting. The, the Protestant Americans didn't do anything like that. They didn't go to opera. They didn't have soirees. Mm-hmm. They didn't do walking on Esplanade Avenue. You know, and they ate crawfish. You know, we did all of these other things where Americans, Puritans, didn't do that. I mean, we went to church on Sundays, but we went visiting after, where we didn't pray all day like they do now. Well, I don't want to say that, but it's a difference. Mm -hmm. So when they came here, they're like, what do you mean that the enslaved person is is sleeping in your house? (laughs) (laughs) They have their own room. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They have their quarters because they have to look after the elderly in the house. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they they do. Oh, and they just go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you see, you got the gossip at the store, too. Mm-hmm. So you, you knew what was going on when you went to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. That's like the movie Saratoga Trunk. Mm-hmm. I think Edward Bergman was very, very young when that 
was the perfect uh, example of New Orleans in those days. Mm-hmm. Perfect mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. She came back here to claim her heritage. Hmm. Interesting. An American came with his boots, so she thought, oh, he is vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, what made Creoles um, unite, you know, and I wanna, when I say Creoles, I mean, you know, those who were... Were well, here before. Were here before, right? It, what it, made them unite eventually with Americans to become American? Money, I guess. Money. I think it was also the 1811 slave revolt. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was that. Why did they want these Creole women? Mm-hmm. They had babies for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a dear friend of mine, he always talked about how, you know, during that time period, um, they, um, they wanted, you know, women it, after, you know, they wanted women who knew how to cook because they needed to keep up with society. Americans, you know, in government, like Governor Claiborne, et cetera, so they can make sure that they keep up with the Creoles, you know, the elite Creoles, I should say, Mm -hmm, because you got to keep up with society. American food was very plain. Mm -hmm. You know, potatoes. (laughs) No shade. (laughs) No seasoning. No, you're making me laugh. <laughs> what? Potatoes and cabbage. Potatoes and cabbage. <laughs> we use pickled meat and beans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't have pickled meat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we got a lot of things from all over the world here. You know, the Mexicans, the Africans, the Italians. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we combined all this food. We never had plain food. Mm. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had to show the Americans how to farm. Hmm. Hmm. You know, the, like I said, the Germans, you know, they're farmers. The Indians were farmers. The Africans were farmers. Mm-hmm. You know, rice, too. So they had to show the American people because they had no skills. Mm-hmm. But they wanted the land. Right. They wanted a place to build. They didn't have anything else. They were looking for land to uh, colonate themselves on. Mm-hmm. Just like the French wanted to colonize, and they did, the Spanish colonized. Well, American wanted more land. And this was a vast territory. We were not part of the United States. Let me clarify that. We were the Louisiana Territory, which included parts of Mississippi, Pensacola, Florida, all the way up to Canada and beyond, yes. We were not part of the 13 original colonies. Dr. Kara Olage, you know, who used to be the director of the Amistad, what she always say, she would always say, the America would not be America if it wasn't for the Louisiana Purchase. That's right. It's when Napoleon Bonaparte sold us. See, we became United States, part of the United States. But we are not American people. And so the free people of color who were in Louisiana, like Edmond Dede and even others, they went to Paris. They went to Paris. They went to Veracruz, Mexico. Went even to Veracruz, in Veracruz Mes- today, yeah. you can find um, that they use filet. And, they, and they, they eat okra. They have vines. They have okra vines. And I would think that they have merleton, coyote squash. Mm-hmm. Uh, merletons. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. coyote squash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Americans didn't have any flavor. None whatsoever. No flavor for music. No. <laughs> Potatoes. 
You are hilarious. <laughs> you are hilarious. Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did have potatoes in the Bible. <laughs> That's the history. It is. It is the history. It, it is. is the I history. mean, you can't you can't wash it down. History yeah. is history. It is. It is. Some people want to deny the history, or they don't want you to read the history. Mm. But history will never go away. Mm. So to be fair about it, you have to tell the whole history. And you see that even in the architecture here, right? The divide, uptown versus downtown, and the way that you know buildings and homes were built, you know, during the French and Spanish colonial period versus, you know, the American. American, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they were looking to save space here. That's why everything is up high, you know, and narrow. Whereas the American sector of the city, everything was wide. The, the buildings are wide. The houses and are wide. And all the homes were painted white. Yeah. As, composed, as opposed, juxtaposed with the Creole well, houses. Yeah, the color. color. Mm -hmm. It's the color. The cemetery was not always white. The cemetery was painted in color from the French and the French. I'm glad that you mentioned the cemetery. What holiday? All Saints Day. I want you to talk about All Saints Day because that is very unique to New Orleans, the Caribbean, and how you know people honor their ancestors here. And I think what makes New Orleans also so special is people don't forget who you are and that you were here. I mean, people still talk about Marie Laveau. Still talk about Marie Laveau. Still talk about Tommy Lafon, uh, Venerable Aria DeLille. And if, whenever she is canonized, she will be the first Creole woman of color to be declared a saint from Louisiana. And from she New was Orleans. feeding enslaved people. Oh, yeah. She did a lot for the community, especially, you know, the Treme community. And it began St. Mary's Academy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And initially, Aria's group was called the Sisters of the Presentation. And it didn't have a uniform. They didn't have a uniform, but they, later on they got that. Yes, that is one holiday that people give homage to their ancestor. And it used to be, um, what's those potted plants? It was a potted plant that they used to use, and they would bring that, mums. Hmm. They would bring mums to the cemetery. Or they would take flowers. Everybody had a garden, and they would take flowers from their garden, and they would bring a container there with water, and place it on a tomb. And you talked about who was in the tomb, and you walked around to see who was visiting tombs, and you struck up a conversation. So you, I think that's how I learned that people, when they die, they're very close to the people in their community, because it's easy for me to find a tomb. <laughs> it's, because they're always together. Mm -hmm. You know, relatives are together, neighbors are together in sections in cemeteries. But number one was not always whitewashed white. It was painted in different colors. With the culture that was here, maybe with the Protestants, they were all white, you know, but not our tombs. They were different. Because when you, when you go to restore tomb and you start scraping, you see the different colors that was on the, uh, that was on the tomb. So conservationists, Ten in thing number one, St. Louis number one is to go back to that original color. It would be very boring to go in St. Louis number one or number two and see all white tombs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I hope that don't happen. Mm -hmm. I hope it goes back to the original color mm. that it was because that white is just it's nondescript. 
And now it's hard to get into those cemeteries, you know, because it's now privatized, right? It's privatized. Uh, but if you have a family pass and you can prove that you have a relative there, then you can get a family pass and you can go there. And so I don't know what color they're being painted, but I, I hope that it's not all white, mm. that when they're doing the restoration, they find the color and they, they've painted that color. It would be sad and it just would be terrible to go in there and there's no personality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it have a personality with all these names on it because people go there. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it wouldn't have a personality if they were all white. And the morning was different. You know, I was um, at the Gallia, at the Gallia Historic House over um, Halloween, and every year they mm -hmm. have that. Um, they open it up, and you know they talk about mourning in Creole culture and how they would put the, you know the the, you know drape the mirrors, and the women depending on what status you were wore all black veils down to the ground. They had to mourn longer than the man, yeah. right? You know. And then the second line music, you know, that came out of, you know, just this cultural um, phenomena in New Orleans, this cultural um, that was embedded in the community to, come to to have music, food, dance, all of that together. That didn't happen during it. my time. Mm. Not They didn't have jazz funerals. Mm -hmm. Uh-uh. Not when I was little. At Corporal Christie Church, mm. they didn't have brass bands. Mm. That would have been... Shameful. Mm. That would have been shameful. Um, because you could still wake the person at your house. A friend of mine's mother died. That was 1963. And they put up a, a poster on the post, and you could still do that, that her mother passed away. And she was in the living room. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the kitchen area, they had the sandwiches and they had the um, coffee mm -hmm. that you could have. And... When we go to her house after, we would run through the living room. Because hmm. <laughs> that's where her mama was laid out. <laughs> in the living room. Well, you know, when we got old, it was all right. Hmm. And then at the, um, you had the wake and you had the funeral, and you could have sandwiches on that sunbeam bread. You know, I don't think they make sunbeam bread. But you had little sandwiches with cheese, ham and cheese, mm -hmm. at the funeral parlor. And uh, that was a wrap. Then you, you went to the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And then that was it. Sometimes you went to the house and sometimes you didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, And then people just congregated and talked and they, they went home. But the first thing, I always say this. Funerals in New Orleans, <laughs> to die in New Orleans, <laughs> it is a ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't just put somebody in the ground because the first person is going to come with a smelling salt. <laughs> Ooh. The other person is going to make the coffee. Yeah. How you doing, Shay? I heard you. <laughs> he was really no good, you know. Mm, oh, Lord. <laughs> but how you doing, Shay? <laughs> it's a process. Mm -hmm. You don't just die in New Orleans and be buried. Mm -hmm. There's a whole process mm -hmm. that you have to go through to be buried in New Orleans when you die. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about maybe there was extended. Well, she's not going to be there, is she? <laughs> <laughs> well, whose child is that? Huh? Mm -hmm. Who came over here? <laughs> it's, 
It is never an easy process mm -hmm. to die and be buried in New Orleans. Nope. Mm. I don't even have this cell smelling salt. I need I to don't find think so. me. Maybe somebody got some in their cabinet. You know, it's been sitting there for a while. <laughs> a, oh, Lord. I think I'll find out. Yeah. If, if, if you can look on Amazon see if they sell some. Maybe if we, you have people that's going to call in and ask questions. No, no, oh, no. Oh, but if any of you here get in contact with Zella. Yes, yes, find the smell. If you song. know where you can find stuff. Smelly sound. Get in contact through the network, whatever, at Dillard University. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and, ask, and tell her you know somebody who sells smelling sound. Mm. <laughs> I need that. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, and I think about New Orleans culture and just what you were talking about earlier, just about Italy and, you know, uh, Africa, Senegal, Congo, oh, yeah. Haiti. You know, there's such a huge African influence um, and Caribbean influence in this culture. You know, I want you to talk a little bit about maybe Haitian influence because I saw re now they have a um, this past Mardi Gras. You know, I'm seeing more Haitian restaurants pop up now. You know, open up now. Now they even have a carnival um, crew that is all Haitian. Oh. And it's very interesting, you know, and I'm always telling my students about, um, you know, the skull and bones and the flambeau <laughs> and just, the, you know, and red beans and rice and how that that culture is. And we were part of this geography, you know, this 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 we forget sometimes because we're in this modern world. But New Orleans was central to the Caribbean, Latin America. It was a port city and so much was coming into the city. I have a great grand great great whatever. Uh, from uh, Haiti, mm -hmm. she's from the northern part of Haiti, and my granddad, my oldest granddaughter now is is dating a young man from Haiti. So I mean, yeah, I mean, all a part of our DNA here. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the food, the houses, everything, mm -hmm. the storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, from Africa, from Haiti, Bird Rabbit. You know, all yeah. Children now I see in schools don't know the stories. They don't know these stories, and they don't know the nursery rhymes. They don't know that. So those things have ceased, more or less, in schools and, and in the home, mm -hmm. and in the home. Nobody knows about the rabbit. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and Dr. Sachs' um, wonderful book, Buki Fayette Gumbo. <laughs> we won't talk about that. That's all fair. <laughs> we love Dr. Sack. <laughs> Bear rabbit. <laughs> She's like, back to the point. <laughs> but no, you know, and I think about, you know, just, um, you know, hair. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the teen, y'all, when you talk about hair and mourning, you know, and how they would take the hair and put it in a brooch and make jewelry. So and you, my brooch. Yeah, I see your brooch. That's what made me think of it. Yeah. You know. We used to. My grandmother used to have a little container. It's, it's porcelain. And the hair, when she would come in, it would be put in that. Because they said, if you threw your hair outside, a bird was going to take it and give you a headache. Because he was going to make a nest mm, mm. With, your, uh, <laughs> with your hair. Is that why, you know, the, back in the day, you know, some of our elders would say, don't, you know, make sure when you get your hair cut that you get that hair. And, you yeah, know. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think so. There's a there's a movie a film that I was watching recently, um, To Sleep with Anger. You ever seen that film by Danny with Danny Glover and 
um, uh, what's her name? Um, so, so many of people in that in that film, but it's 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 about a family that moves to California, and they have a guest that comes from down home, and he brings his Toby, which is like what you know a gree bag, and oh. he, he brings all this energy to the house, you know that that isn't best for the family, right? And so I just wonder how, you know little things that we keep up with superstitions that we don't even realize with how do we you know tell these stories to the future generation and to hold on and preserve these stories the grigri bags the the algiers sister the seven sisters well you have to you know that's why people when they want some something special done they say you know somebody who could help me or do you know somebody that have two heads so what that means is Two heads means a person can, that can see in the spiritual world and in the human world. And help me means you might be talking about a traitor, somebody who can help you that knows herbs and prayers, you know, uh, uh, means something like that. They'll, sometimes they'll say voodoo, but rarely. So you, you have to know the language. Mm-hmm. You have to know the language and what exactly it is that you're looking for. Because you, I'm a, you know, we're going to end this um, podcast shortly, and I, you know, I, it gets so good, and I will invite you back because you know, Madame Trevine, she is just full of knowledge, full of wisdom, full of stories, and she's just she's a star. Oh, the let queen. me tell you about Creole women. Okay, okay, okay. Let me tell you about Creole women and men. Men come down here from all parts of the United States and say they're just coming for a visit. They wind up staying, don't they? And I'm talking about all races of men. Lulu White. Oh, well, not only Lulu White, women, those Creole women tell them, I'm going to fix you a red gravy. Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to cook some. You better stop. You're going to get spill all the goods. <laughs> I'm gonna make you some spaghetti and meatballs and throw some chicken wings. You in know, it. there's a hip hop artist that caused a lot of controversy because he revealed that. Oh! Kevin Gates and Chippo, our dear friend Chippo, was in it and she was serving him red gravy. <laughs> I, think, I think we better cut this out and go for the next stage another time and talk about voodoo. <laughs> We'll so, have a part two. Listeners, you have to wait for part two to come about voodoo in New Orleans. Yes, right? yes, yes. We'll have a part two. I think that's a good red, thing. Red, uh, spaghetti and meatball. That'll be the segment. Spaghetti and meatball. Ooh, now you know that was Miss Chase's favorite dish, too, Bob Oh, Don't strike me down, please. And, and you know what they go back and say? Oh, somebody in New Orleans, who dude him? Mm. He never came back. He got married and had 10 children. <laughs> <laughs> this is wonderful. Oh, this is wonderful. I want to thank our listeners. We will have a part two, and we will definitely bring Madame Trevine back because we have so much to talk about. We really do. I know your listeners want to know about meatballs and spaghetti. Yeah. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ladies. <laughs> Well, man, you need to listen, too. <laughs> Be careful when you eat spaghetti and meatball down oh. south. Okay. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening to Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer and my lovely guest, 
the honorary, the amazing, the queen, Madame Barbara Trevine. There is no other, period. Thank you, Zella. Love Thank you. Thank Love University. you, Shay. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> and we're out. Thank you. Culture and Flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.